0: Bibles now, if you would please, to the Old Testament book of Genesis, chapter 3. This morning we're going to look at what may be considered an unusual Christmas text. Usually we're reading from Matthew chapter 1, as I did a moment ago, or from Luke chapters 1 and 2. Occasionally we look at other Old Testament texts, such as Isaiah chapter 7, that speaks of the virgin birth of Christ. Sometimes we might go to Micah. And there, Micah, who was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, told us that Christ would be born in Bethlehem even though it was 700 years before the event. But if we're going to talk about prophecy, the oldest prophecy concerning the birth of Christ, then we have to go to the first book of the Bible, which is Genesis. And we have to go back to... The very beginning, just a short time after creation, when God promised that Christ would come into the world. Now, if you want to get an early start here and fill in the first blanks of your listening sheet today, your first answer is this that the promise that Christ would come into the world. And we find this in Genesis chapter 3, a promise. And we also find here the reason why that Christ had to come. And so, if we're going to begin, the best place to begin is at the beginning. So we'll start there, and then we'll work our way forward, and we'll keep going forward until we're going to see the event that all Christians today are waiting for. Now, if you'll stand with me, please. We have a rather long reading from Scripture today. We're going to read the entire third chapter of Genesis. And here we see the promise that Christ would come. Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse number 1. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? "'Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat?' And the man said, "'The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, "'she gave me of the tree, and I did eat.' And the Lord God said unto the woman, "'What is this that thou hast done?' And the woman said, "'The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat.' And the Lord God said unto the serpent, "'Because thou hast done this, "'thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field,' Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And Adam also, uh, and unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Let us pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come into your presence today. We thank you for this wonderful season of the year, and we ask you, Lord, to open our hearts to the message today. And we thank you for Jesus Christ who has come to make salvation possible. Bless us as we study this this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. My message this morning is the plan to reclaim paradise. The last verse of Genesis chapter 3 ends with Adam and Eve forced to leave God's paradise. And we have in this story the story of two people that are placed into a perfect environment. They had a relationship that, with God that no human sins have ever experienced. They were innocent of sin, and they had the ability to communicate freely with their creator. We also have the introduction of sin into God's creation, and this is when the serpent, the one whom we now know as Satan, fooled Adam and Eve. He tempted them. He tricked them into disobeying God. He told them a lie that they believed and they sinned against God and thus brought about the terrible cause for God to send Adam and Eve out of paradise. So This is the story of the fall of man. And in less than 1,500 words from the beginning of the text of the Bible, we now have been introduced into a cosmic conflict, a conflict that spread from the unseen spiritual world into the visible world of God's creation. And this is an ongoing conflict. And it's one that's not going to be finally settled until this world is burned up, until it's renovated and paradise is restored. We also have in the story a great promise. Before God drove Adam from the garden, there was a promise. And I think that it was an audible promise. God was speaking to the serpent, Satan, and he told him that there was going to come a a deliverer he said that the one that you have deceived is going to bring a deliverer into the world who will crush your head now there is a form of poetic justice in this in that the one who is weak the one who who is taken advantage of the one who is taken advantage of by a more powerful being the weak woman was going to give birth to a son who would destroy satan's tyranny forever and that would be god's own son and he would come to crush the life out of Satan for what he had done. And we find this in the 15th verse. God said, "And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now the seed of the woman is Jesus Christ, And not since that time have we ever heard of the seed of the woman. It's always the seed of the man. But this is not going to be a son that's born from man, but this would be a son that's born from God, a son born from a virgin, a son uh, that was born from a woman impregnated by the Holy Spirit of God, and he would be God incarnate, and he would be born of this lowly virgin Galilean girl. But for now, there is this conflict. There is a cosmic battle that begins to rage upon the earth That same battle that was taking place in the spiritual world is now here and all men and women are involved in this conflict. All people that have ever lived are in this conflict and they're on one side or the other. They are either on God's side or they're on Satan's side. And there is no other choice. There is no neutral ground. Every person is involved in this conflict. Well, in this story we also find, and this is very important, the curse that began the conflict. God cursed the earth. Because sin had defiled the creation, the entire earth was cursed. And so Adam was driven out. Thorns and thistles began to grow up. The animal kingdom was divided between prey and predator. And Adam himself was headed for trouble. His life from here on would be difficult. He'd been infected with sin. And from that day forward until the end of time, men are cursed with this terrible disease of sin. And so sin has brought troubles, and sin brought disease, sin brought strife, sin brought hatred, and finally sin brings death. And in order for paradise to be restored, that curse of sin has to be erased. Sin has to be rooted out and destroyed in every form. Paradise cannot be restored to innocence until sin is gone forever. And this is why we have the promise... The promise is that Christ would come and he would reverse this curse by undoing it and cleansing men of their sin and destroying the works of the devil. Now the apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And so when the work of the devil is destroyed, this is, is when we have the recovery of righteousness. and when the Bible speaks of righteousness, it means the righteousness of God. Now, righteousness, very simply, means to be right with God. And whenever there's sin, man is not right with God. And so, in order to be right, that sin has to be dealt with. Sin has to be done away with. In order for us to get back into paradise, true righteousness has to be recovered. And the last time that I checked, there is no one who lives without sin. Every person born since that fateful fall of Adam have a sinful nature. And the children of Adam and Eve were the proof of that. Cain killed Abel. And that's because he was infected with Adam's sinful nature. And that sinful nature has been passed on from generation to generation to generation until we come today... And every person still has this sinful nature. And so there is no way that we can fight our way back into paradise. The cherubim with the flaming sword is always going to be there and prevent it. Sin cannot reenter paradise. And that's why after thousands of years of human history, Jesus came to the world to be born of a virgin. He couldn't be born with Adam's sinful nature and enable us to reenter paradise. He could only do that by living without sin, being born without sin, living a perfect life. And when he did that, his sinless life merited paradise for us. Now, that is really the gist of salvation. If you want to know a very simple definition of salvation, this is it. It means to be right with God by receiving the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been merited by his perfect life. Now, God requires it, and you don't have it. And so when you trust in Jesus as your Savior, that's when the perfect righteousness of Christ is given to you. And that is what actually enables you to re-enter paradise. Now, whenever you hear me uh, teach that there is no good work that you can do to be saved, this is what's meant. Because the best that you could ever do will never rise to a level that will unlock unlock paradise. There's only one way that that can be done, and that is for you to be given Christ's righteousness. Righteousness is recovered by the sinless life of Christ, but that isn't all. I mean something has to be done with those sins that you've committed sin is a crime against god and there are no crimes that go unpunished and so christ not only gives perfect righteousness but he came into the world to suffer the punishment of her sins that that guilt of sin also has to be removed and in order to re-enter paradise christ had to go to the cross and pay the payment of sin's penalty And that benefit of Christ's suffering on the cross is given to you, is appropriated to you when you put your faith in him. And so when you believe that his life given on the cross and his blood shed was the payment of your sins, then it is by that faith that the righteousness of Christ is given to you. And then you are forgiven, and then you are justified from all of your sins. In essence, then you are right with God. And then when paradise comes, you will be able... To enter, Now we go back then to Genesis 3.15 and the promise of Christ's coming. And we see that Satan would bruise the heel of the woman's seed. Now that bruising is actually the death of the cross. Christ would suffer for sin, but he was only bruised. He wasn't defeated. In three days he arose from the grave. He conquered death. He is alive and he lives to step on the serpent's head and to crush the life out of him. Now what I've given you is just a synopsis of Genesis chapter 3. That first prophecy that Christ would come is given here. God did not send Adam out of paradise with no hope that he could ever enter again. There is hope by faith in the seed of the woman, and faith in him allows anyone to enter paradise again. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit here and move the story along. The promise was given at the beginning, but it was a long, long time before Christ came. There was much to be done. The world had to be prepared for the coming of Christ. And so let's talk about that next, and that is the preparation for Christ to come. In Galatians chapter 4, we have another Christmas text. It's not the same as what we read in Matthew 1 or in Luke chapters 1 and 2. But nonetheless, here is a passage that speaks of Christmas. In Galatians 4, the apostle Paul said that when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman made under the law. The fullness of time, that means the time appointed by the Father. And God's timing is always perfect. It's never too soon. It's never too late. And it wasn't until everything was properly in its place that Christ was born. Now, I suppose that if you and I had planned it, that we would have thought another time would be better. Why not now? I mean, if God was going to wait so long to send Christ into the world, why wouldn't he send him now? I mean, wouldn't this be a better time? Today we have television, we have radio, we have satellites that beam images all across the world. We can see what's happening in another part of the world in just a split second. And so why not now? Why not now when we have Katie Kirk? And she could go to Bethlehem and she would have her camera and she would have a microphone and she'd be able to show everybody and tell everybody in the world all at one time that Christ was born in Bethlehem. And those poor wise men, they, they could have had GPS on their camels and they wouldn't have to go to Jerusalem looking for Jesus. They would have showed up in Bethlehem right when they needed to be there. But when Jesus Christ came, it was at the right time. It was a time of religious desperation. the promise of Christ's coming is given in Genesis 3.15, and that was repeated over and over again by the prophets. For much of the history of Israel, though, they had forgotten about the Messiah, and they were living as if he would never come. But then God shook things up. Their kingdom was taken away from them. They lost Jerusalem, and they lost the temple, and they didn't believe that that could ever happen, but it did. You read the Old Testament prophets and you'll find those false prophets arguing against this and saying, it can never happen to us. We're not going to lose Jerusalem. God's not going to allow that to happen. Our temple will be here. But it wasn't. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians came and they took the northern ten tribes of Israel into captivity. About 150 years after that, the Babylonians came and they took the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin into captivity. And for 70 years, they were held in Babylon. But then they returned from that Babylonian captivity, and the people once again were, were looking for the Messiah to come. And for 400 years, although they were very wicked people, they still knew that there was a promise of the Messiah. And there were many that came that they thought could be him. They kept looking for this one who would be a deliverer, and they thought certain people could be him. So they were looking for someone who met the description of what was found in Scripture. For 400 years, they kept looking for that. There was one fellow by the name of Eleazar Maccabeus who looked very promising because he led an uprising against the Seleucid Empire that was in control at that time, but he was killed. A drunken elephant fell on top of him and killed him. His brother, Judas Maccabeus, also looked to be very promising, he was able to recapture Jerusalem, and he cleansed the temple after a wicked king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes had offered a sow on the altar in the temple. And so he, he was able to lead an uprising against the, 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 the Seleucid Empire again, and he was able to defeat them and to take Jerusalem back. And he cleansed the temple, and that's Hanukkah. That's what the Jews celebrate today, that dedication of the temple. That's what Hanukkah means. But they looked at the life of Judas Maccabeus, and he died, and so he couldn't be the Messiah. But the Jews kept looking for it. They were desperate for it. And at the time that Jesus came, the the Jews were under Roman occupation. And that rule of the Romans was often very cruel. Matthew tells us about Herod, that puppet of Rome, who was the ruler at the time that Jesus was born. And when he found out from the wise men that a king was born of the Jews, what did he do? He went and he killed all of the infants from two years old and under surrounding Jerusalem. And the Jews had to put up with that kind of thing, that cruelty of the Romans. And so they were looking for someone who could be the Messiah. When John the Baptist came, he was suspected of being him. When he began to baptize and to call people to repentance and tell people that the kingdom of God was near, the Jews thought, maybe he is the Christ. And Christ was there. Christ was among them. And it's almost a miracle that they could have missed him. We've been studying the Gospel of Matthew, all these miracles that Jesus did in proof that he was the true Messiah. But they missed him because they were looking for something completely different. Their expectations were wrong. They were looking for was military deliverance they wanted to get in back into paradise by a crushing political victory and so they expected a messiah would come who would with the sword would destroy the roman empire but christ was not that and christ didn't promise that he came to establish a kingdom and his kingdom would come but first man had to be restored first sin had to be dealt with. And that hypocritical religious system that was in place at the time, it was not capable of dealing with man's sin. And that's because these people had become self-dependent. They were trying to reenter paradise on their own. They were not God dependent. Now it's amazing that people are still so self-dependent today. People are missing paradise today because preachers have filled up bookstores with self-help theology. And the preachers that ought to be telling us that we need to repent of our sins and to place our faith in Christ instead are giving us books like Your Best Life Now and Become a Better You. Those things are written by a guy who who is preaching self-help and nobody is ever going to get into paradise by helping themselves. Only God can do that. There is no self-help in God's system. And so, friends, today, we need to be as desperate as those Jews were that Jesus would come into our hearts. This is also a time of religious desperation. Then also, it was a time for gospel expansion. See, the world was prepared culturally for the time of Christ. Perhaps one of the most important aspects of Christ's coming was how that God prepared the world for the rapid expansion of the gospel. Paul wrote in Romans, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Now there, Paul is speaking about governmental power. Governments rule by God's permission. And so what God has done throughout the course of history is to use human government to accomplish his purposes. And so 350 years before Christ was born, Alexander the Great conquered the known world. And he not only brought his government to the world, but he caused a cultural revolution. The Greek culture known as Hellenism became the world's culture, and the Greek language was established as an international language. And so when Christ came, Greek was spoken by all educated people. And it was through the Greek language that the gospel was spread. There was a common language that united the world at that time. And that's why we had the New Testament translated to us out of Greek rather than out of Hebrew. God planned it that way so that the gospel would spread like wildfire. Whenever a traveler would hear the gospel in Greek in one city of the Roman Empire, he could take that to another part and he could speak to other people in other parts of the empire and he could give them that gospel of Christ. And it's because of his common language. And those early Christians were very diligent about this. They heard how that Paragai's paradise had been regained and they learned how their sins could be forgiven and they believed this, that they could be righteous with God again. And they weren't ashamed to take that message everywhere that they went. The apostle Paul treated it like a great debt that he owed to his fellow man to give him the gospel of Christ and tell him how he could be saved. And so Paul said in Romans, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise." So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And there is Paul telling us that the righteousness of God by which we enter, paradise, is given by faith. If you want to live, he says, the just shall live by faith. And so culturally, the world was prepared for that gospel expansion. The good news was that Christ had obtained paradise and that went to every country of the known world. And so Christ came in the fullness of time. He came at the right time. And he came to a stable in a little town called Bethlehem. He was the seed of the woman and this was God in the flesh. God spoke to Joseph in the dream, and he said, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And God could have just as easily said, And she shall bring forth a son who shall regain paradise for his people. She shall bring forth the son who will take away their sins and give them paradise in its place. And so in God's justice the woman that was first deceived, the one who was first who first took of the forbidden fruit, gave birth to the one who would crush the serpent's head. Now I want to take us back to the first of the message and tie this back together so that we see this final crushing blow of Satan. And this is really the purpose for Christ to come back. That crushing final blow is the purpose for Christ to come back. So this cosmic battle began before the fall in paradise. It spilled onto the world stage when Adam was determined that he would destroy God's crowning achievement. God created man to glorify him. And so as long as sin remains and as long as Satan remains, he will mar God's creation. And so we ask the question today, is this going to go on forever? Will this conflict ever end? Will the world actually see paradise again? And the answer that the Bible gives is yes, it will. It is going to end. The present condition of the world is not a permanent one. The seed of the woman left the world, and he sent the Holy Spirit into the world to comfort us and to aid us until he comes back. And then he is going to purge the world finally from sin and Satan. Now there's good news and bad news in this. It's good news for those that are promised to enter into paradise again, but it's bad news for those that are left outside. See, the most frightening thought that you could ever have is that Christ will return, and you have not been justified from your sins, and you have not been ready, been made ready to enter paradise again. Now, there are two very important features of Christ's return that you need to know about, and I'm going to tell you these, and you need to decide which is best. Is it better to enter paradise, or is it better to stay still on the outside? Now, the first feature of Christ's return is the final rejection of Satan. Now, in the beginning of the message, I said, every person born in the world is on one side or other of this cosmic conflict. On one side, there stands the allies of Satan, and on the other side, there are the allies of God. And when you were born, you were automatically enlisted in Satan's army. Now, you might not like me saying that, but you were born into Satan's kingdom, and he is your God. What I'm saying is that you were born outside of paradise. See, Adam was driven out. And by your natural birth from Adam, you are on the outside. And that's the present condition of the world, but it's not a permanent one. Neither is the rebellion of Satan permanent. He's going to be destroyed. He challenged God. He tried to take God's authority. But like that slithering vermin that he is, God is going to take his heel and crush the head of the serpent into the ground. And that's done when God casts Satan into the burning fires of hell. In Revelation 20, verse 10, the Scripture says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. The devil that deceived them. Well, deceived who? He deceived everyone that's left out of paradise. The devil deceived them, and because he did that, he's going to be cast into the lake of fire to be tormented forever. Now, you need to watch this and pay attention to it because some will say, well, good riddance for the devil. I'm glad that he's going to be gone. Now I can go my way and everything will be fine. But not so fast because the deceived, the Word of God says, are going to follow him there. Now, it's not good news, but I can't tell you how good the good news is until I tell you how bad the bad news is because next there is the judgmental ruling of Christ. You might be thinking, for goodness sakes, you're preaching a Christmas message today. I mean, can't we go without this for one week? No, well, we can't. Because Christmas is not all about fun and games and about presents and about lights and about candles and peace on earth and goodwill to men. And when we turn Christmas into that and that alone, then the real message of Christmas is lost. The real message of Christmas is that Christ came to regain paradise and it's not going to happen without a fight. And it doesn't happen without judgment. Jesus is coming to rule the world in righteousness. Now, remember this. We've already said righteousness is what admits you or bans you from paradise. What you do with righteousness and whether you have it or don't have it is how you enter paradise or don't enter paradise. And the Scripture says that Christ is coming to rule in righteousness, and that's why the news is not so good for those that aren't ready. In Revelation nineteen eleven. says, the Scripture says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And that's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Satan is cast into hell, and the Scripture says everyone that's on his side are going to follow him there. In Psalm chapter 9, the psalmist says, The Lord is known by the judgment which he executed." The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Hagolion, Selah. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all nations that forget God. You see those words, yon Selah? 16th verse, it means amen. You need to think about that. You need to think about this. The Lord executes judgment. It says the wicked are snared in their works and will be turned into hell. Now, the good news is that Jesus came to reverse that inevitable judgment for all those that trust Him as Savior. He came to regain paradise for them. Now, you need to get really worked up about this, and you need to get frightened about judgment and about hell. But then you need to trust Christ and then settle down into the joy and the peace of Christmas, the Christmas that Christ brings into the hearts of those that believe. You see, the rebellion of Satan is not permanent. The rebellion of those that follow him is not permanent. The present condition of the world is not permanent. There is a plan to regain paradise. And so this is, then, the beautiful recreation of paradise. Peter tells us about this, Second Peter chapter 3. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. In the 13th verse of that chapter, he says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. So a new heaven and a new earth, that is paradise. And we look forward to that time because that's when the earth is purged of sin. A new heaven and a new earth will come where there is no more sin. There's no, more, there's no one to make sin any longer. Satan is gone. All who follow him, evil angels and all wicked men, are going to be gone forever. And so this is paradise regained. And those that enter into it, enter into a world of regained innocence, of perfect righteousness... Revelation says that there's nothing that defiles that will ever enter there. There There's no abomination. There are no lies. There's no sorrow. There is no crying. There is no pain. And listen to this in relation to the original problem of why the present creation is fouled. Revelation 22 says, And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, nor for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Adam had paradise, but he never had a paradise like this one. This is real paradise, a new paradise paradise and it's been regained because of Christmas. Now friends, I do hope that all of you know Christ. I hope that you're not going to be left out of paradise and you don't have to be because Christ is right now ready to receive you. Christ is right now ready to forgive you of your sins and Christ is right now ready to give you his righteousness. And then when paradise comes, there won't be any flaming sword to keep you out. Paradise is regained when you place your faith in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. That's when Christmas is real. That's when the truth of Christian, Christian come, uh, Christ, uh, Christmas comes out. Those who know the true Christ of Christmas have regained paradise by trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And I encourage you to do that today. Don't be left out of paradise because Jesus will let you in right now let's pray our heavenly father we come to you this morning we are just indeed thankful for what jesus christ came into this world to do we thank you for christmas time and it is a time of joy for those who know you but we do want to make everyone aware that christ coming into the world holds no hope and no promise for those who leave this life without trusting him as savior Lord, I pray that you would speak to some heart today. You encourage someone to come to you in faith, believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save them from their sins. And then, Lord, may all of your people be drawn close to you and look forward to the time that you will come again and receive us unto yourself. Bless in this time that we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.